History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of the History of Persia. A few months back, I was fortunate enough to hear from Oxford University Press about doing a review for a new book by Matt Waters. We weren't able to arrange a full interview, but I was able to read the book and give my thoughts. The book in question is King of the World, The Life of Cyrus the Great. In brief, it's good. I really enjoyed it. You should totally read it. It's even going to be available in audiobook form for those of you like me who can only enjoy learning if someone else reads the book. Okay, not only because I did enjoy reading this one the old-fashioned way on a 36-inch 4K LED monitor that was actively destroying what remains of my retinas. Regardless, links to both formats will be down below in the episode description. Before getting into it, I do want to give everyone a final reminder that I will be speaking at Intelligent Speech 2022 this Saturday, June 25th, It starts at 10 a.m. Eastern. The conference is an opportunity for podcasters and listeners to interact and learn. It'll be a ton of fun. And I am talking about Cyrus the Great. How's that for synchronicity? It's all digital. They're hosting it through Zoom. 
and ticket holders will still have access to all of the recorded live streams after the event. So you don't have to attend live, and you can go back to listen to the overlapping sessions. You can buy tickets at intelligentspeechconference.com or use the link in the episode description, and if you use promo code PERSIA, you get a 10% discount. And you know what? If some of my listeners are choosing not to attend for financial reasons, hit me up. Send an email to historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com, the contact page on the website, or any of the usual social media handles. I can at least help out a couple of people. But enough about me. Matt Waters is a professor of classics and ancient history at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. With degrees in history and ancient history from the University of Pennsylvania and Notre Dame. His PhD thesis at Penn was actually a survey of Neo-Elamite history, and that focus on the earlier Iron Age in Iran has absolutely informed his other work, including King of the World. Waters is actually a staple of my own bibliography for this podcast and other projects, especially my guest episodes about Elamite history for The Oldest Stories, and the Patreon bonus episodes going into greater detail with Median history. His 2014 book, Ancient Persia, A Concise History of the Achaemenid Empire, remains my absolute number one book recommendation for anybody looking to start reading about the Persians. His 2017 book, Theseus's Persica in its Near Eastern Context, will also feature heavily in an upcoming episode. But let's talk about the king of the world. Starting with broad praise, it's very well-written, a very engaging writing style, and very easy to follow and understand. In short, King of the World has all of the stylistic elements that made me suggest his earlier history of the Achaemenid Empire to newcomers. It's a great way for someone who doesn't read a lot of academic history to start getting into some of the more nuanced issues of Cyrus the Great. At its core, King of the World is a wonderfully thorough assessment of Cyrus's life and accomplishments. I'm always hesitant to spend too much time rehashing the stories of the older kings in this podcast feed, but given that we are now 60-odd episodes removed from Cyrus, I'm guessing even the binge listeners could stand for a quick refresher. It will just make discussing King of the World a bit easier if we're all on common ground. So to give you the first 10-ish episodes in summary, for most of the Iron Age, the Assyrians were the ultimate power in the Near East, dominating all of Mesopotamia, Syria, and the Levant, as well as exerting immense influence over all of their neighbors in Egypt, Anatolia, the Caucasus, and Iran. They reached their zenith under Ashurbanipal in 639 BC, but just 30 years later, the coalition of Babylonians and Medes completed the process of wiping the Neo-Assyrian Empire off the map for good. 
Both Babylon and Media had been ruled by the Assyrians for much of the preceding 300 years, and both participated in the conquest, but Babylon took the lion's share of Assyrian territory. Historians are not sure whether or not the Medes had anything that could really be described as a central government. Different descriptions and different pieces of evidence paint most of Iran as tribal, or at least very localized, while other sources indicate more of a centralized Median confederacy, if not an empire. Regardless, the Medes were left with their Iranian allies, a small bit of northern Mesopotamia, and a corridor into eastern Anatolia. Even as tensions escalated between the Medes and Babylonians over the next 50 years, the fledgling kingdom of Persia, mostly known as Anshan at that time, was beginning to come into its own. The Persians were broadly subservient to the Medes, and in 553 BC, Cyrus II, king of Anshan, went to war with the Medes. Three years later, a Median army mutinied and went over to Cyrus, securing his victory and the throne of the whole Median kingdom and its control over their allies. Cyrus's own origins are a mystery. According to Herodotus, his grandfather, King Astyages of Media, had a vision that his daughter's son would destroy him. And so he ordered that Cyrus should be set out to die of exposure as an infant. However, the noble assigned to this task pitied Cyrus and left him with peasants, until Cyrus was discovered and reunited with his true parents. Theseus, on the other hand, says that Cyrus actually was a peasant, but was made a servant at Astyages' court and rose through the ranks as a meritocracy. Both of them agree that Cyrus rebelled. On the other hand, Xenophon has Cyrus as a wholly accepted prince, grandson of Astyages, and rightful successor to the throne. None of these make a ton of sense in context, since the fantastical orphan was a tired trope in 500 BCE, and the only contemporary sources do agree that Cyrus defeated Astyages. Absolutely every source disagrees with Theseus, Cyrus was not a peasant. Once in control of Media, there is a small gap in the timeline. Around 547 BC, Cyrus defeated some king whose territory had a U in the name. The Babylonian records are quite damaged, and it could be Lydia, Urartu, or somewhere else. Regardless, sometime in the 540s, Cyrus did conquer all of Anatolia. Most famously, that included Lydia, and he left his subordinates behind to mop up the Greeks of Ionia when they resisted. Herodotus suggests that the rest of that decade was spent dealing with campaigns in the Eastern Empire. Then, in 539, Cyrus took Babylon. Conquered seems like it would be a strong word, since only one battle is recorded at the city of Opus, and all local Persian-Babylonian sources point to a peaceful seizure of Babylon itself. The Greeks imagined clever and fantastic battles, but without evidence. 
Nine years later, Cyrus died in combat somewhere on his northeastern frontier. The Greek sources are split on the details, and the Babylonian evidence is silent. At this point, there still wasn't any real evidence for Parsa itself outside of the partially constructed palace at Pasargadai. Of course, I covered all of that in much more detail a few years back, and Matt Waters covers it in even more depth for this book. As a book targeting a popular audience, I think King of the World has a very noble and much-needed goal. And honestly, one that I wasn't quite brave enough to attempt in the early episodes of this show. Waters does a fantastic job of trying to introduce a general audience to the way Persian history is written about and discussed in academia. In fact, general audience might not even be the right phrase. I am not entirely convinced that King of the World will have that level of broad appeal. Amateur audience might be the better way to describe it. Since the History of Persia podcast is probably a common reference for everyone listening to this, I'd say the book is much closer to where my show is now than where it was when I was actually discussing Cyrus. I did take time to stop and compare different sources early on, but not nearly as much as I do now. I have the benefit of 75 episodes and more than three years to build up and explain the intricate problems with Persian sources, so I wasn't dumping it on you all at once. I know that it's not the most thrilling part of the process, but it is necessary for this subject. Waters does that and takes all of the possible steps to lay the groundwork for those problems with research and sourcing in the preface and the opening chapter, titled The Kings of Anshan. That chapter doubles as the groundwork for the historical narrative, as well as telling the story of Assyria, Elam, the Indo-Iranians, Medes, Babylonians, and how all of those people tied into the early Persians. Because I am familiar with some of Waters' other work, I was expecting to see more emphasis on the Elamites than I had included in the early podcast episodes, and that does show through in King of the World. However, I do think he makes the wise choice to reference and explain the Elamites, but not dwell on them or their influence on Cyrus, since it's not nearly as well established. Instead, he focuses on the slightly more familiar and more broadly accepted relationship to the Assyrian Empire. Honestly, in terms of historical narrative, I have very little to add, critique, or say that isn't said in the book itself. It is, quite simply, a strong, informative retelling of the many stories of Cyrus the Great. It includes Greek stories, Babylonian stories, and biblical stories and even the scant archaeological evidence. As a general research tool, Chapter 5, The Imperial Project, contains a very helpful and detailed description of Pasargadai and the ruins that have been excavated there. Hot on the heels of my episode on the Greater Persepolis area, it was a good but somewhat disappointing reminder 
that not much has changed about how we think about Pisargadai. However, it is probably the first place outside of Livius.org that I've seen simple, audience-friendly descriptions of Cyrus's capital. The rest of that chapter deals with other aspects of Cyrus building the governing infrastructure of an empire. That also includes a very well-balanced, if somewhat empty, discussion of the evidence from the Persepolis archives, where certain broad elements can reasonably be read back to Cyrus. Evidence for his family members like Atossa and Artistine, and a large collection of antique cylinder seals from Cyrus's time and earlier also provide some potential insight. But I think Waters was wise not to read too much of Darius's empire backward into Cyrus. In doing so, he also avoids what I think is one of the major pitfalls of other modern Achaemenid biographies, two out of three which are also about Cyrus, where they just become general histories of Persian society and culture because there's not enough information about most of the kings to focus on their own deeds and achievements. This book is short, but it is focused. In terms of both popular history writing and biography, this book is a bit odd, through no real fault of its own. My first thought when trying to describe this issue was that King of the World is really a source book, or at least a source commentary, in disguise. For those unfamiliar with the terminology, a source book is a collection of primary sources published together for easy reference. Larger examples like Amelie Kurtz, A Corpus of Sources for the Achaemenid Period, are bona fide academic reference material, while smaller ones are usually geared toward a college or high school course. I don't think Waters sat down intending to create a source book for Cyrus the Great, nor do I think that's necessarily the best way to think about the final product. However, it is definitely one aspect of it. As a consequence of how scattered and diverse the ancient sources are, Large chunks of this book do read like a list of primary sources, accompanied by a summary or analysis. This is especially true of Cyrus's birth and the conquest of Babylon, where the sources are especially numerous. The conquest of Babylon has the added dimension that it is the only context where we get a large number of true primary sources from Cyrus's lifetime. These actually dominate most of Chapter 4, The Chosen One, which takes its name from Cyrus's claim to be the chosen king of Marduk during his conquest of Babylon. Honestly, I think this is absolutely necessary to fully appreciate Cyrus the Great's role in history and the development of world philosophy and historiography. That actually leads me into the last giant strength that I want to highlight in King of the World. It trusts its reader. (laughs) 
When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. The most consistent flaw in popular history writing is the belief that normal people only want to read really straightforward stories. Sometimes that causes authors to try and synthesize a singular narrative out of complex characters like Cyrus. This often leads to the loss of competing historical narratives and, by extension, the loss of the opportunity to analyze those other narratives. In the case of Cyrus, the different legends that grew up around his past are infinitely more useful to historians trying to understand his life and his empire than actually knowing what he did before conquering the world. Within Herodotus, Xenophon, and Theseus, we see a mythical figure a la Sargon of Akkad, Superman, or Moses or history's most perfect prince, or a scrappy underdog who won the world through cunning. Those are Cyrus's real legacies, and Matt Waters goes out of his way to expose his audience to all of those options time and time again. The second most consistent flaw in popular history writing is the belief that normal people are repelled by learning how the sausage gets made. A typical academic history book will open with a whole chapter on historiography, explaining the major changes and developments in how the topic has been studied over time. Many pop history books skip this entirely and project a false impression of academia as unified, or worse, of the author as unrivaled as a font of information. 
nothing could ever be further from the truth. And in the case of the Persians, pretending otherwise can just be confusing. There are many preconceived notions of Achaemenid history because of the wars in Greece, almost all of which have been reconsidered and chipped away by scholarship for the last 40 years. Cyrus the Great is even more intertwined with issues of Iranian nationalism as well, and Waters takes the time to explain how these issues have been altered and resolved in the first chapter. He directs readers to specific later chapters where more detailed issues will be addressed. This is a much healthier way to talk about those issues than just glossing over them or drowning your audience in a multi-chapter flood of jargon. Dr. Waters balances this out in a series of appendices at the back of the book. The first deals with source criticism in greater detail, and opens with an acknowledgement that a detailed discussion of sources can be very boring. That is why it has been relegated to an appendix. But it also recognizes that information about how scholars judge their source material is necessary to understand the whole picture. The third appendix is a lengthy discussion about the debate over terminology for Taspid versus Achaemenid. This is another part of the book that I think will serve as a great resource for new enthusiasts, especially as the word Taspid becomes more common in academic sources without context, it's worthwhile for an accessible intro like this to explain it. For those of you that need the refresher, Achaemenid is the family name pushed by Darius the Great and his descendants. It comes from their ultimate ancestor Achaemenes, Old Persian Hakamanish, but it was never mentioned by Cyrus. Instead, Cyrus's only known genealogy ends with Taspes, identified as Achaemenes' son by Darius. Achaemenid is still the generally accepted term for the entire span of the first Persian Empire, but as Taspid is becoming a more common term to describe Cyrus and his sons, Waters rightly finds a place to acknowledge it. He also astutely recognized that continuing the main thrust of his book into the realm of Darius's coup would be going too far outside the actual biographic confines of Cyrus the Great. As I said before, King of the World is nothing if not focused. Admittedly, my opinions on the issues addressed in the appendices, and quite frankly the bibliography at the back, are strengthened significantly by another recent pop history book about the Achaemenid period as a whole. I won't name names or include a full review of that right now, purely because I don't want to tie Dr. Waters and his excellent book directly into my personal desire to eviscerate one of his colleagues' work. Listen for more news about that review probably sometime next week. In terms of weaknesses, King of the World doesn't have too many that stand out, unless you disagree with all of the stuff I just said about trusting its audience with academic technical detail. Most of the issues I could point out all stem from the same root cause. Cyrus the Great is, quite simply, an awful topic for a biography. 
Most of the reason he's so interesting is because we just know so little about him. It's the opposite of Alexander, where he's so fascinating because we know how to dissect almost every detail of his life, and the blank spots become maddening. While I obviously don't think that history has to be written in a three-act plot structure, there's definitely an element of narrative that is necessary when trying to write for an unfamiliar audience. Regardless of whether amateur enthusiasts or the broader general public are the target here, there's not a ton of story to latch on to because it's constantly being interrupted and reset to analyze the next conflicting source. Like I said, I think this is one of the book's intellectual strengths, but it is probably the greatest obstacle to readability. That's not Waters' fault for the most part, aside from the initial decision to write about Cyrus alone. As I said, he did a good job with what he had, and will expose newcomers to important parts of Achaemenid studies. This is more a complaint about ancient Persian biography in general. A narrative flow can be assembled by intense speculation and educated guesswork. That is the tactic employed in the 2013 book Discovering Cyrus, the Persian Conqueror Astride the Ancient World, by Reza Zargami. Zargami's book is a gargantuan thousand-page tome that explores not just Cyrus's historical stories, but how a narrative might be synthesized from them, and the long historical legacy of each aspect of Cyrus's narrative. But if the options are thousand-page speculation and synthesis, or just over 200 of straight source analysis, maybe Cyrus isn't the best candidate for biography. The final weak points I want to address both stem from information mentioned, but not discussed in as much detail as I would have liked to see. The first is admittedly my own niche interest, but one I think is fertile ground for exploration. Its admission is also partially the product of Dr. Waters' general decision not to engage in too much speculation, which I can respect. The interpretation of the Nabonidus Chronicle as saying that Cyrus conquered Urartu in 547 is only addressed in the context of explaining the conquest of Lydia in Chapter 3 on the March, which covers most of Cyrus's conquests and speculates about his work in the east before reaching Babylon. The Persian occupation of Urartu, which was soon identified as Armenia for the first time, is largely unaddressed here. That's actually pretty typical for most Achaemenid histories, but stands out since the issue of Urartu was directly considered and significant time is spent on discussing when Susa might have been conquered in Chapter 5, a topic that is almost never mentioned in Achaemenid history because there are no sources for it. Like all too many ancient cultures, including Water's own specialty in Elam, Irartu is often written off as a poorly understood and forgotten place. While that is true, 
its role as the progenitor of Armenia and location squarely at the center of not just the Persian, but also the Median Empire, is a cause for more attention. In typical tellings of early Iranian imperial history, it's a gaping black hole that ought to be explained with more than simply saying that Cyrus conquered eastern Anatolia, wherein lay Urartu, or what was left of it, before Lydia in western Anatolia seems reasonable enough. That's really all water says about the subject. The most fruitful avenue for exploring the topic would be Xenophon's story of Tigranes, a king of Armenia who entered into an alliance with the Medes and tried to withdraw from that agreement, only to be forced back into submission by Cyrus. Of course, large elements of Xenophon's story don't align with the Arartu mentioned in the Babylonian Chronicle, where their king is said to be killed, but also this story comes from Cyropedia. I'll be the first to say that Cyropedia is historical fiction and utterly unreliable as a source for the life of Cyrus the Great, as a whole. However, as Xenophon was writing with significantly better access to Achaemenid primary sources than we are, any totally unique narratives like this are at least worth questioning. Even for my extremely critical taste, Cyropedia does not feature enough in King of the World. The final thing I want to note is Chapter 6, Legacies. It's the final chapter, and actually where Cyrus's death is covered. In my opinion, it is one of the stranger sections. It focuses mostly on Cyrus's legacy in antiquity, rather than in the modern world, especially as he was a fixture of Greek and Roman rhetoric and philosophy, and as a parallel to Alexander. These are important details to be sure, but they feel unbalanced with the relatively minimalist coverage of Cyrus's modern legacy. A chapter on legacy would be incomplete without it, but the coverage of Cyrus's legacy in ancient Iran is necessarily lackluster and I think should have been shorter. The fact of the matter is, is that it doesn't exist. All indications from the first flowering of Persian literature in the late Sassanid period show that Cyrus and his dynasty were all but forgotten. Their monuments and place in history were attributed to mythical and legendary figures from the Avesta, who, if they ever existed, predated Cyrus by centuries and were probably legends in his time. To any observer, this stands in obvious contrast to Cyrus's monumental place in modern Iran, where after a brief hiatus following the Islamic Revolution, he has returned to his position as an icon of Iranian nationalism. Despite this, very little is said about subjects like the 2016 Cyrus the Great Day Uprising, the ongoing tension over Cyrus's tomb in Iran, or really even the 1971 celebration of Cyrus's legacy. Instead, after doing the right thing and plainly dismissing the doctrine of human rights imposed over the Cyrus Cylinder by Mohammad Reza Shah, 
Waters spends several pages explaining what human rights could possibly have meant in antiquity, and why that doesn't align with modern sensibilities. While interesting, I'm not sure that it was necessary when compared to actual elements of legacy. No attention is given to Cyrus's biblical legacy at all here, despite the recent flourishing of references to Cyrus made by Benjamin Netanyahu and other Zionist leaders in Israel. It's a shame because I think those references necessarily invoke some of what is going on in Iran right now as well, because they do paint a bizarre mirror image next to Iran's love of the same figure as the two countries shake their fists at each other. The lack of modern legacy in the chapter entitled Legacies does stand out as Cyrus becomes ever more prominent. Despite any critiques I may have, they remain relatively minor, and any lengthy amount of time they take up in this podcast is due more to the complexity and nuance needed to explain them than to their weight in the overall conversation around this book. Matt Waters' King of the World, The Life of Cyrus the Great, is genuinely an excellent introduction to the founder of the Persian Empire and to the process of Achaemenid studies more generally. I can't say whether or not it will have a massive public audience, just that I think it deserves one. However, I can say that listeners of this podcast will find it interesting and rewarding as an in-depth analysis of a topic I covered a long time ago at a more introductory level. And as I said at the beginning, there will be links to order this book down in the episode description in print and audio format. That's all for this week. Next time, we continue on with our traditional funeral ceremony of an episode about religion before finally killing off Darius II. So join me for a discussion of the Yashts and the Yazadas. Until then, head to intelligencespeechconference.com to buy your tickets, promo code PERSIA, and go to History of Persia podcast for more information about this show. That's where you'll find things like my bibliography, The Achaemenid Family Tree, and the support page, where you can find all of the ways to financially support this project. That includes things like one-time payments through Stripe, the brand new merch store, and Patreon, where we are trying to raise enough followers to keep me going on a weekly basis into the future, and you can get access to different things at different levels of subscription, like ad-free listening and bonus episodes. Of course, if you want to support this podcast entirely for free, you can do that by telling new people. I would love to grow the audience, and that is the best way to do it. Go on social media, tell your friends, share it with the world. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at History of Persia Podcast, and on Twitter at History of Persia. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 